Welcome back to the 209th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we'll be flipping through some of the top stories, including Ron DeSantis' path to winning Iowa and if that strategy will work out for the primary season. The two big legacies of Mitch McConnell, even though he's not technically gone yet, uh, they're starting to write the, how should I put it, uh, the moratoriums for him. So they're trying to analyze his legacy and how John Fetterman has actually left the left, or at least that's how uh, Salone likes to put it. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So does DeSantis even have a chance anymore? For a while there, he was leading the pool of non-Trump candidates, and now it, it doesn't look like he's up there on top. He's put a lot of uh, money into Iowa, hoping that he comes out on top there. And at the end of the day, if he's able to secure a number one, maybe that will flip some things. I, I honestly don't know. Tell me what you think down there in the comment section. I'd love to hear everybody's opinions on the matter. So our first article comes from the Washington Examiner. Headline reads, DeSantis leaves it all on the field in Iowa. So I already kind of gave you the little bit of the background of what's going on. But this article, I'm going to jump straight into a quote so you can get the perspective they're coming from and the beginning of what they're trying to get at here. Quote, don't tell Governor Ron DeSantis he is an underdog as the Iowa caucuses approach. He rang in the new year rallying Republicans in the state to put him on a gilded path to the party's 2024 presidential nomination. Quote, I think we have an opportunity to just make a statement in this country. And... It's we, the people, that ultimately decide these things, he said in a West Des Moines New Year Eve party. Quote, because I think you have a lot of media and they don't think that you even matter. When he says you, he is speaking directly to the voter here and he's saying the media is just passing us by. He's kind of playing on the same narrative that Trump played on, which is the media doesn't care about you. I'm here. I'm here to represent you, your vision and what you want to see in a president, what you want to see for the country. And at the end of the day, I think that it's an interesting message. It's a good message because he is trying to differentiate himself from Trump. He's using similar wording with the media, but he's also saying Trump is speaking about his issues. Nikki Haley is talking about the issues from her political donors. There's a particular spin that he's putting on it. And then he's saying, I'm trying to speak up for you. And if there's one way to differentiate yourself, while it's not really bold and it's not directly attacking, like, let's be clear, it's undercutting and trying to attack a little bit, but it's not outright mean and down in the dirt trying to get underneath people's skin and trying to really hit them hard. He's trying to still be presidential or governly, uh, gubernatorial, you could say, in his approximations of these sort of things. And He's trying to come across as the more civilized person. And I think that tactic has worked for him a little bit, but not always the most. So let's go to the national polls. What are the national polls saying about what's happening with Ron DeSantis right now? Quote, the real clear politics polling average now has Trump at 627 nationally, with DeSantis at 10.9, a tick behind Taylor. The former president is now has a commanding 51.7 point lead as actual voting gets closer. But as DeSantis is the first to remind us, 
No actual voting has happened as of the writing of this article. There are still, there's no national primary. Though those numbers could be a warning sign to the rest of the Republican field about what awaits them when the race turns to multiple states and media markets simultaneously on Super Tuesday. And he's been saying, DeSantis has been saying this for quite some time. This is not a national election. National polls say one thing, but we have to worry about it on a state-by-state basis. But at this point, it seems as though a lot of DeSantis's resources are going in to Iowa and these sort of states. So it's not as though he's really dispersing his presence as much in all these other states. He's been to 99 counties in Iowa. He's been a lot of time there really banking on the fact that it's going to uh, hit a home dinger for him, that it's going to start him off strong. And then if he doesn't win in New Hampshire and South Carolina, which look like if anybody outside of Trump is going to get them, it's probably going to be Haley. At least he can still have that in his ball cap as he goes in to some of the other primary days. So this idea that it is not a national election, that it is a state-by-state state election, it's true, but if you don't expend the resources in order to really get the ground recognition, the footprint in these different states, then is it actually going to be effective? Is this plan where you're going to take it on state-by-state state actually going to work out if the results don't necessarily go in your favor and then those national polls, they stick in the mind of the people? They say, ah, well, everybody else wants Trump. You know, 61 or 62% want Trump all across the nation. Maybe I should just go with Trump. So while he's right that the polling on a national level is not as important as polling in very specific states that can get him the nomination, that national polling, if one, it represents the people that do just want Trump from the very beginning, but also it represents a cognitive wave that can affect anybody who's not fully decided yet. And they're going to look at the polls and they're going to say, well, it looks like Trump's going to win anyway, so I might not go in and vote. I'm just going to vote for Trump because that's how it looks like it's going to come out. So it can have a really, really, uh, I don't want to say kneecapping, but it can undercut DeSantis in the point that he's trying to make. Quote, camping out in Iowa and courting its seasonal the social conservatives has worked for candidates in the past. Cruz was able to beat Trump doing this recently as 2016. Huckabee and Santorum did the same with national poll numbers worse than DeSantis's. Santorum was in the single digits in most Iowa polls as of late November 2011 and in a few outlying surveys that December before he upset Mitt Romney. The track record on the delivering a candidate, the nomination, though, is much spottier. Bush in 2000 had a coalition of establishment Republicans and evangelicals, and Bob Dole had mostly the former in uh, 1996. So this is what I really wanted to point out and wanted to get to, which is just because you win the Iowa caucuses. We saw Ted Cruz win the caucus going up against Donald Trump in 2016. Guess what? Uh, Ted Cruz was not president. So just because you do win this first victory doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to keep on rolling and get, build momentum like you think it is. And the reason I think this is really, really important to note is I was a caucus. I was a different system than primary voters. And the thought process behind, hey, DeSantis winning in Iowa is, okay, hey, there are other people that want him too, more than 
Trump, which kind of eats at the national poll wave mentality that I mentioned before. And then they can say, oh, yeah, okay, people want DeSantis. I can vote for DeSantis. I'm okay with his policy, so on and so forth. But for the politically astute or the ones who listen to news and other things that are going to push back against the DeSantis narrative if they don't necessarily like him, then all they have to say is, well, that's a caucus. That's a different thing than a primary. And it undercuts that mental winning mentality that becomes associated with DeSantis if he comes out on top with the Iowa caucuses and nobody questions it. They're like, oh, okay, you know, DeSantis won. And Ted Cruz, he kind of went on the coattails of that win for quite some time. So DeSantis, he has an interesting plan. A lot of the money that he's been spending on the ground has been done by his super PAC, which means lack of coordination. But you can really funnel all that huge money, especially the stuff that he rolled over from his gubernatorial campaign, into working on the ground. But then it's also led to a little bit of drama. I don't, I don't want to characterize it as drama, honestly. A little bit of... Uh, news coverage over the internals of his super PAC. Uh, and this is a quote from Mr. Van Platz, who is a influential figure in Iowa. Quote, I did an event on New Year's Eve with Governor DeSantis, which was hosted by the super PAC. And it reminded me a lot of the 2008 cycle with Mike Huckabee because I was surprised about how many people were there and energized by the governor's campaign and the number of people who have come to Iowa from different states to help him in Iowa, he said. Quote, to us nerds, the Super PAC drama is interesting. To the Iowa caucus goer, they couldn't really care less because they're in it for Governor DeSantis, not for the Republican strategist Jeff Rowe or anybody else. End quote. And that's exactly why when you see all these process stories, uh, I've been listening to some different political podcasts and it seems that this is the parlance for it. So I'm going to pretend that pretend I know what I'm talking about and we're just going to roll forward with the idea that all these different process stories are coming about about the super PAC and it's leading to questions about whether DeSantis is well organized behind the scenes, whether his super PAC really has his back. What's the internal drama? Is this another version of the Trump drama that we're going to experience? That may intrigue the people who, if you're listening to this podcast, if you clicked on this podcast because you like the topic, then you may be a person that actually cares about those sort of things and is intrigued by the dynamics going on in the Super PAC. But the average day person, the average caucus goer, like Vanderplatt said, uh, do they care? Are they sitting there saying, oh, yes, the, the drama with the Super PAC, I care so much. No, they're going to the events put on by the Super PAC or if it's put on by DeSantis's campaign. They don't care. They're there for the policies. They're there for the man. And I think, you know, when you say they're there for the man, that has been contentious because a lot of people are criticizing DeSantis for not being good at retail politics. And I think it's a mixed bag. I've seen some good videos of him doing retail politics. I've seen some other clips where he looks a little bit awkward while he's out there doing it. Uh, His wife, Casey, is doing door knocking in Iowa right now. She is a big asset when it comes to that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, there have been a whole bunch of criticisms thrown at him by Trump, thrown at him by the left when they thought he was going to be the nominee for the general election from all the people trying to rip him down from lower in the primary, like your Haley's, like your Christie's, like your Vivek's. So we will see. We'll see. We have to wait until January 15th to see how everything pans out. And even then, Will it be enough to actually catapult him forward? Or are we looking at a lame horse running or even walking at this point? I honestly don't know. I hope that DeSantis gets it through instead of Haley. Personally, I I think DeSantis is, um, how should I put it? 
less Washington than Haley. Uh, if I'm to throw my own personal opinion out there, not that I really want any of them, but you know, that's just how it is. I think that at the end of the day, I would rather have DeSantis challenging Trump than Haley challenging Trump. And I think that he would probably have a better chance as well, considering that he kind of pulls on some of the MAGA people and going into the general election. I think that he would beat Joe Biden pretty solidly just based on records alone. But even in oration, ability to push back, things like that, it would be a tough battle for Biden. And that's probably why I mentioned earlier how the left-wing media apparatus did start, you know, going after him, especially after some of the hurricane things. They were trying to find issues with the way he went about doing his job. And they've come after, oh, his smile, pudding fingers, things like that. And that's probably because they saw him as a genuine threat to Joe Biden if he did make it out of the primaries. So we'll see how all that pans out. Wait until the 15th to see who wins. And then after that, watch his rise or his fall. So let's jump to our second article that comes from The Bulwark, also a conservative outlet, but they are a little bit more inwardly critical, if we could put it that way. They do attack Republicans quite often, or at least they make sure that all the flaws are out there for everybody to see. You could call it honest journalism. You could talk about it being attack journalism from within the party. I don't really care because they have an interesting article here with headline Mitch or sorry, McConnell's two big legacies, the end of Roe and the forever grip of Trump. Now, one of those for conservative people is very positive. The other one for some conservative people is like, yeah, let's go. And for other conservative people, not so much. But for the left, both of these things are absolutely terrible. So Mitch McConnell, he has been in there. I think he's the longest serving party leader in the Senate now, if I'm not mistaken. I believe the article actually highlights that one. Yes, the longest serving party leader in Senate history. So <laughs> it's it's one of those things where he has a lot, a lot of different wins, losses, uh, legacy defining moments underneath his tenure. But they're focusing on two of the most recent ones. One, because it was enabled by Trump and people don't like Trump, so it kind of gets good headlines and they could put Trump in the title or at least things that he did in the title, but also because it sits really close in the memory. I think if we give this another 10 years, Mitch McConnell's gone and people start to really analyze what he did over the course of his tenure, maybe they would find two different or three different legacy pieces than these two that may be even larger, uh, you know. That's just my opinion. Uh, maybe I am wrong on that one. But let's talk about what he actually did. Quote, the sup conservative Supreme Court he and Trump co-created to overturn Roe's longstanding constitutional right to abortion has triggered a sustained voter backlash across red states and blue. The entire country, meanwhile, remains trapped and threatened by Republican Party's inability to move past Trump, even after he fomented a multi-front attack on democracy to stay in power. Trump is now charged with 91 counts of uh, in criminal indictments, two of them related to his big lie that he won the 2020 election, so on and so forth. So, yes, I, uh, I definitely I definitely get where they're coming from with these first two paragraphs. They're outright saying, OK, one. He basically cemented Trump's ideology. That's what the author's trying to get at here. The ideology of Trump, or even just the conservative ideology with a little bit of a Trump spin, he actually locked it into place being on the Supreme Court. Because remember, they are lifetime appointments. So these justices, these three justices that Trump was able to put on, they're going to be on there for a long time. So that actually kind of locks in Trump's legacy. And also, 
it could raise, in my opinion, it could raise the, hmm, how to put it, it could raise the memory of Donald Trump. It could literally, I don't want to say idolize him, but when we look back in history and they're talking about conservative members of the political class or conservative presidents that left a long-standing legacy and you look at what Donald Trump did, some of his policies were not, you know, the best. Some of them were not conservative whatsoever. Them, Some of them were so conservative that the Democrats are going to absolutely hate them. But you can't deny that putting three justices on the Supreme Court, who then within two years of him leaving office and overturning Roe v. Wade, that is consequential. That is a legacy. And I think if the author's trying to say here, which they're not, they're trying to say that it cemented the Trump movement within the Republican Party, which may also be true. But if he's trying to say, which I think would be a more apt analysis, that Trump has cemented his figure in the history of the conservative history books, then yes, I 100% agree with that statement because of what he's doing here. And McConnell helped do that because he was the enabler in the Senate. He was the party leader. Now, the author's kind of giving him crap for it. And let's be clear. If you don't like what Mr. McConnell did, if you don't like what Mitchie Boy did up there, then you can have your right to do so, so on and so forth. But to be naive enough to pretend that in this world of party politics where you just toe the line or you just try to benefit the party rather than yourself politically, or where your personal liability stand, which we can criticize that all day, where you should live by your personal convictions. But no, Mitch was saying, this is for the party, this is for the movement, this goes ahead, and he made sure that Trump got his justices onto the court. And I think any leader of the Republican Party in the Senate would do exactly the same thing. Like I said, this is a world, this is a political world where the parties are tools to victory. And if you're the leader of one of those branches, you are going to make compromises. You're not going to be able to stand purely on your own principles, whether you agree with it or not. You are going to have to do what is best for the movement. It is a position of leadership and also sacrifice. So I think that the author here is being overly cruel to Mitch McConnell on these very specific points. But I also do agree with the fact that McConnell did not put up as much resistance as you would have thought. McConnell didn't like Trump, remember? But because he was in that position to lead the party forward and he saw the shift to a more populist Trumpian party, which let's be clear, I still think it's more traditional conservatives or disaffected liberals who have turned to conservative than actual pure MAGA. And when I say pure MAGA base, I would say that's about 30% of people who will just leave if Trump is not the candidate versus people who like Trump and are MAGA, but they're also conservative. I wouldn't consider those pure MAGA. And I wouldn't say that Mitch is giving in to them. They're just supporting Trump in the moment. They're not a new contingency, a new part of the uh, coalition that is being adjusted for in the party. And Mitch has to lead everybody in the party. So if new MAGA people get in there and they don't necessarily like what he's doing, but he still has the power in order to execute the role of leader of the Senate, then he has to work with them. And at the end of the day, if they do make up a, a people that support Trump, endorse Trump, even if they're not the MAGA types, but they still are conservative, they are in his caucus. He has to work with them. And to pretend as though he can stand on his high horse and say, oh, no, 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 I will not let Trump take over my party. 
I'm sorry, uh, Mitch McConnell does not have that much power. The leader of the Senate, Republicans, does not have that much power. He may be close to second in the Republican Party, maybe third, fourth, you know, within the top 10 for sure. But Trump got elected president. He is the new leader of the party. And sometimes you got to suck it up and you just got to keep rolling with it. But then again, we have the people like Liz Cheney who completely defected and said that, no, I'm not going to stand for Trump. So maybe that's what this author expected Mitch McConnell to do. I think Mitch McConnell was a little bit more practical minded than that, in my opinion. But I don't know Mitch that well. Maybe he genuinely didn't want to uh, keep on going as the party leader, but he saw, okay, hey, there's a MAGA movement, and I got to jump in, I got to rein it in and make sure it doesn't go too far. Maybe that was his thinking. We don't know what his internal thinking is. There are some good books that I've looked into recently that are out there that uh, kind of chronicle some of Mitch's experience, or at least the people around him, their experiences with Mitch and how he goes about things. And also, I'm, I'm sorry, I've been saying Mitch this whole time, or McConnell, uh, Senator McConnell. That is unfair of me. I don't know you on a personal level. Senator McConnell, you deserve respect for the office you're in. And, I, you know, I do say with Trump to President Trump, I say with Biden to President Biden, it, it's something that I, I should probably work on because I feel as though nowadays we don't have as much respect for the offices. And that's why commentary coming out like this is extremely frustrating because it's just trying to pull people down rather than look at their better instincts. And, you know, my episode that came out on Monday was very cynical. And now I'm in a little bit more of a look at the best intentions of people mood or at least trying to work towards that. So maybe that's why I'm being overly generous towards Mitch McConnell. But with all that, that's enough said. Let's go to another person that I'm going to be overly generous with, and that is John Fetterman. And this comes from, the article comes from Salone, and the headline reads, John Fetterman's shameful betrayal of the left. So, for those of you who do not know, Mr. Fetterman was in a hotly contentious battle versus Dr. Mehmet Oz in order to become the senator in Pennsylvania. I believe he is the uh, junior senator at this point. And he had some stroke issues. Uh, there was a whole being disabled kind of argument going on during the election. He billed himself, or at least put himself out there as a progressive. He liked Bernie Sanders, so on and so forth. And now he's kind of switching his position on one or two things that may normally fall within a progressive person's handbook. And the progressives are getting really, really mad at him. So uh, I'll read a little bit of the beginning of talking about why he was beloved by the left, and then we'll go into a uh, different perspective about his move or his shift now. Quote, Fetterman became a even more beloved in the left-leaning circles due to his abhorrent ableist attacks from the right over his various health c concerns. There was Oz's shameful dispersion of trying to use Fetterman's May 22 stroke to convince voters that the tall man wasn't physically capable of being a senator, and Laura Ingram's theory that Fetterman's hospitalization was feel, uh, from feeling lightheaded 10 months ago was part of a strategic political calculation plot. Um, you know, sometimes Laura Ingram makes okay points. Sometimes Joy Reid makes okay points. I can tell you now, both of them sometimes make some crazy points, and this is one of Ingram's, in my opinion. Uh, by Fetterman's wife to transform him into a national sympathetic figure and even an inspirational champion. And he came down the right way on workers' rights, so on and so forth. They go on to elaborate on some of the things they like about him. Well, let's talk about the things that they don't necessarily like about him. Quote, Fetterman is acting like he wants to replace Joe Manchin or Christian Cinema for the most left-loathing Democrat centrist in the Senate. 
as calls for Benjamin Netanyahu's Israel to adhere to a ceasefire against not only Hamas, but the Palestinian lives that have grown louder and louder from progressive and left online populist groups only to fall on deaf ears. Fetterman has been proud to fully back any militaristic decision from the Israel Defensive Force. 11 days into the war, the 54-year-old announced his unwavering non-perspective to any ceasefire, or sorry, no perspective to any ceasefire. The many progressive supporters of Fetterman in Pennsylvania and throughout the country who were the backbone reason that he was elected and gave him their impassioned support through the conservative echo chamber's hatred of him were alarmed at his tweet and urged him to consider his hawkish take. So, uh, let's pause here. Uh, the progressives, they uh, they cannot take in. Let's be clear. They're not outright saying Fetterman is the demon. Fetter, Fetterman is the devil. But you notice here that he could be the most progressive person on unions. He could be the most uh, forward thinking on mental health and things of that nature, disabled culture, because he did deal with mental health and he addressed it in his own way. And he was trying to gain respect for it. And he was trying to bring these issues up, so on and so forth, whether you agree or not, blah, blah, blah. He was doing this sort of thing. That would fall under a progressive playbook of trying to uh, bring up people that are put down in society, that they don't get necessarily get the coverage that they should. They, I don't want to say they're oppressed, but that sort of mentality where they are lesser because of their mental illness, that is definitely a perception. That is definitely a trope that people lean on about people with mental health, that they say, oh, we're so downtrodden because people don't uh, accept mental health issues and so on and so forth. It is changing, but he brought that to the forefront, and there are other progressive issues that he has totally been on board with. And now that they disagree, he disagrees on one thing, and let's be clear, it's not a small thing. I don't disagree with the progressives when they say this is not a small thing. This is a big central issue to a lot of people who are truly progressive and hold true to that oppressor oppressed narrative. And when I say progressive, I do mean truly leftist progressive, not like the liberals who are a little bit progressive. No, I mean the people who buy into the total oppressor versus oppressed narrative and the victim mentality narrative where if a certain population has power, then anything they do over another population is wrong. And if a certain population does not have as much power and they do anything against that more powerful cultural figure or that more powerful government, whatever it may be, the oppressors are fighting against the oppressed and the oppressed you know, hit back, and then it's morally okay. That is the framework of the very far-left progressives. And guess what? If you don't adhere to everything that they believe, they're going to come after you. They are going to make comments about you, and they are going to try to bully you into their position. Because guess what? He's, Fetterman stopped getting positive media coverage. He was just kind of existing there for a little bit. And now the first coverage he gets is negative, trying to push him back into a more progressive stance, trying to get him to reconsider his position. Maybe, maybe, and let's be clear, if Fetterman is not just a person that puts his finger to the wind, and tries to find the most popular thing, and this is an actual conviction that he has, like everything else he has, if it's an actual conviction, he's not just putting his finger up to the wind and seeing where the wind is blowing. If this is something that he has a conviction about, and it holds true for everything else, so he has all those other progressive points, but he holds true to this one, then that proves to me that he really is a person with convictions, and I would rather have, I would rather have a progressive person 
who is far out there to the left. And yes, I know what I'm saying. And I would rather have a person who's really strong out there on the right who has their convictions. Rather, I would rather have both of those people who have convictions, priorities, principles, than someone who is in the middle who is just squirmy and will flip on every single issue. Because at the end of the day, we would I would rather have a conversation. I would rather have the debate go on between those people of principle and have a worthwhile debate rather than someone that squirms around and just tries to be politically expedient because then we don't get to the root of issues. Then we just say, oh, okay, this is, you know, this is going to happen because people want it X, Y, and Z versus having the actual debate out in public about why certain things don't work, certain things do work, uh, talking about value assumptions, uh, talking about moral perspectives, ethical perspectives. These are conversations that don't get happen in the public as much anymore. They may happen on TV every once in a while. They may happen in a few debates. But these deeper conversations, they need to happen a lot more in American life. We need to genuinely have conversations about different value assumptions about the world because nowadays I feel like it is truly, truly lacking. And when you can't have these conversations, you can't truly empathize and understand somebody else's perspective unless you understand the root causes, the underlying reasons that somebody believes something. And very often the way to get to that is have two people who are very principled actually debate the nuances of a particular topic, explore why their value system makes them lean certain ways, maybe poke holes in it, maybe find ways that you actually agree with them, so on and so forth. If you just have somebody who is willing to blow around in the wind, they're just going to agree where they can agree with anybody else rather than having a real discussion that actually moves us forward. And it may not lead to uh, actual bill out there or legislation, but it can change the conversation and it can culturally affect how we view things. And that is what I would rather have. So yes, I don't love all of Fetterman's policies, but at the end of the day, if he is truly principled, which this is showing me to some degree he is, then I respect him and I want to see him keep on soldiering on. And honestly, I'll give him even more time of the day. It's not that I didn't care about him before. It's just I thought some of these talking points were pretty straightforward. I was like, okay, we, we got what he's saying here. Uh, I read it and I was like, okay, nothing new. Now I'm going to pay a little bit more attention to the nuance of some of his statements and try to glean what's going on in that head of his because he is obviously a man of principle and he's willing to stick by it. So. With all that said, I had a little bit of a long rant there, but let's jump to our final story that's supposed to leave a bit of a smile on your face. And this one is our daily delight that comes from Parade Pets. And the headline reads, Farm sanctuary cows happily playing in snow are truly living the dream. So, yes, if you grew up near a farm, or you grew up in an area that has a lot of farms, you've seen your fair share of cows jumping around, you know, playing in the snow. By jumping around, I mean kind of walking slowly, but there are some occasions where the little ones really do like to play around in the snow, and this is one of those occasions where we have a really cute video that was posted on TikTok that talks about these lovely, lovely cows just having a goofy old time. Quote, on Thursday, December 21st, an animal sanctuary in upstate New York showed their cows that they belong in the latter category. The latter category is the ones who have uh, fun and shenanigans in the snow. Uh, Quote, in the clip, their herd of rescue cows eagerly galloped into their enclosure through the freshly fallen snow and spent the whole day playing together. It's beyond cute. So if you want to check out this video or you want to read any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday, kind of off the top of the head, not as 
really as scripted as much. It may be influenced by what I'm reading or a story I see or just a random thought that pops into my head when I'm in a cold shower at 7 a.m. So thank you for joining me. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.